Hi, I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you by way of exploring all kinds of angles on the human condition and how we cope and grow. I'll be talking to experts and, I don't know, random people in bars, I guess. Why not? That's going to be the first words for posterity. Oh, you want me to put this on me? Oh, I see. You were holding it. It was a gloomy Sunday afternoon. And being that I know nothing about sports, I thought my neighborhood bar would be pretty empty. But some team called the Warriors were playing, so lots of people were there just begging to have some therapist come up to them and ask them questions about white privilege. So in this episode, Seeing White, we're going to talk about the process of coming to understand whiteness and white privilege as experienced by both white folks, including myself, and people of color. I feel so honored to have my brave bargoers and some kick-ass experts to help me explore this complex, sticky, uncomfortable zone. First, I'll introduce you to the experts. Here is Zara Zimbardo. I am a faculty of interdisciplinary studies at the School of Undergraduate Studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies. That's a lot of studies. studies. <laughs> Zara has an incredibly rich history in anti-racist and anti-oppression work. Her background is in critical media studies and cultural anthropology. And in 2009, Zara co-founded the White Noise Collective, a Bay Area group with chapters now in Rhode Island and New York, whose objective is to examine the intersection of race and gender. We create spaces for folks who really reside <laughs> at that intersection to be better allies to each other in terms of becoming more conscious as racial justice activists. I am also pleased to introduce you to... I'm Allegra Lucas, and I'm a marriage and family therapist intern in private practice with the San Francisco Marriage and Couples Center. Um, I'm also on the diversity committee uh, with San Francisco Camp. One of our local professional organizations. And um, one of my specializations at the Couples Center is cross-cultural couples or intercultural couples. In addition, Allegra provides incredible diversity trainings, helping facilitators, clinicians, and healers of all kinds have more effective cross-cultural discourse, which is how she and I first met, actually. Early on in our discussion, Allegra talked about what it was like for her as a woman of color to be sharing her experiences with me, a white woman. And then it also struck me how it brings up discomfort or fear for you to to share that experience with a white person be, out of fear that I'm going to get offended and react. Well, there's twofold reasons. There's one that I'm being recorded right now. <laughs> you know, so there's that. It's like there are certain things that I can talk about off the record that are... There are certain things I can talk about with other black people, which is, which, you know, it's because they know, <laughs> you yeah. know. Then there's the idea that if I do share this with a white person, how will they take it? Am I going to be accused of reverse racism? Am I going to be, um, you know, judged in some way? Or are opportunities going to be taken care or taken away if I disclose this about myself, if you broadcast this? So yeah, this is for real. This is vulnerable, and we're talking about it. 
There's bound to be discomfort for my interview subjects, white or not, perhaps especially the non-experts. So you guys had, like, looked a little like, what, when I mentioned the topic. How do you feel about chatting about this? Um, I'm fine chatting about it. I think it's, like, a big topic. And sometimes it can be super sticky. And there's bound to be discomfort for you as a listener. So I encourage you to try to stay engaged and present with what you're thinking and feeling as we proceed. And I don't expect it to be easy. So when and how did you learn about racism? And when and how did you learn about white privilege? Especially in a country where many of us were taught as little kids that Columbus discovered America and that the Indians and pilgrims got together and made peace on Thanksgiving Day. They're still teaching that Columbus discovered America. And I mean, psychotic is really the word that just comes to mind in terms of really like national psychosis. Zara's right. That's still what's being taught. So... From the 10 or so people I talked to, experts and non-experts alike, I noticed a common pattern of how awareness develops. Before I start, I want to name that I'll be talking about a simplified version of developmental models which already exist on the subject. Many models use the word stage to describe where we are in our learning, but this is just a limit of a linear language. In fact, development isn't like beating levels on a video game. Unless there's a video game I don't know about where just when you beat the boss on level 3, you're bounced back to level 1 again. All that to say, I am going to use the word stage, but just keep in mind the ways that many of us can move in and out of these different positions from day to day, week to week, year to year. Stage 1 As kids, I think a lot of white people probably learn that racism is something bad that happened a long time ago, like slavery and segregation. It's this shameful part of white history, you know, that history that we're taught in school, that's uncomfortable to mention, and it gets varying amounts of attention and degrees of sugarcoating depending on your subculture, how much of a renegade your third grade teacher is. Maybe you even learn that racism still exists, but... I know for me, being from Northern California, I thought racism was somewhere else, probably in the South. In fact, a 2014 study showed that 70% of white millennials grew up in families that didn't talk about race. I think that, you know, the way that I was taught, which was mostly by white, progressive, you know, wonderful teachers. This is Zara again. Still rendered an understanding of racism, of anti-black racism, of anti-native racism as like, It was like fragmented beyond comprehension or concern, you know. It wasn't real. Yeah, Yeah, it happened, it was like back then or out there. Yeah. Or, you know, that um, racist white people were like those scary people or those like bad people who I too felt scared of, you know, but that's where there would be this distancing of like, well, I'm not a clans woman. So there was like... Mm -hmm racial consciousness but not racial consciousness about whiteness it was just like those are bad white people but not for a second was there like my family is white (laughs) (laughs) or even using the naming whiteness one guy i talked to in the bar reflected on the unspoken perhaps subtly communicated information he received about race when he was growing up outside of philadelphia 
I mean, in history books, I, I would learn about it, and my mom would tell me about like the civil rights movement, but I don't think I really saw that for myself until I was old enough to kind of drive and venture outside of my town and realize that the people that I knew and, you know, the African-American people that I knew, to me, were just like the dudes down the street. But as soon as you ventured outside of my town, then it was like, oh, well, they live on that side and we live on this side. The people of color I spoke with learned about racism and privilege from a pretty early age through personal experiences of direct and indirect, subtle and not so subtle racism, and through interactions with larger institutions that operate from an inherently white dominated and white favoring position. Here's Allegra. White privilege was something that business white people got to go places and do things in a different way than me or my family members did. So at a young age, I started to understand that. Um, I was raised like going to private schools um, oftentimes, and there'd be um, some talk about that, like me having, you know, the reason I was in a private school going to school with other white kids was so that I could have access to the things that other white people had access to. And then it was more about survival, and it was about my mom making sure that I could go places and do things just like the other white kids. And then figuring out how to navigate that as a person of color, how to, you know, what do I have to do? What, you know, adjustments do we have to make? Do we have to lie about our address so we can get into a better school district? So that, you know, so I can be in the school that has a higher test score, which is like, that's absolutely something we did. My friend Tom stopped in to chat with me at the bar, where he reflected on growing up Korean-American with white friends in Campbell, California. I remember friends saying, like, saying some sort of racist slur towards another Asian person, and then saying one of, like, you know, oh, but you're different, no offense, Tom, like, um, or just being oblivious to it. So stage one of understanding for many white people seems to include some level of education about the history of racism, a then-and-there sort of thing, a we-treat-everyone-equally-now sort of thing. And for people of color, there's more of a coming to grips with the idea that they will probably be treated differently and need to adjust accordingly. These lessons come through on both conscious and subconscious levels. Stage two. This is when white people start to see the sugar-coated layers of their grade school history lessons melting away. When we gain deeper understanding of the atrocities that have occurred toward other racial groups, and that these atrocities have long-lasting present-day consequences. For many white folks, this seems to come later, if at all. Again, this depends on how you grew up, your access to education, and the types of classes and teachers you were exposed to. Most people I talk to seem to gain a deeper understanding in college, specifically those with a liberal arts education. Zara reflects on her awakening when 9-11 and the Iraq War began, seeing the way people were being dehumanized, the Islamophobia happening in this country. It had a deep impact on her psyche. Yeah, I mean, um, emotionally, <laughs> that time really felt like I was going mad. And, you know, I don't think that that's actually something I'll ever 
recover from because, um, you know, it's really unbearable heartbreak to be on some level to be a citizen of this country, you know, and so that was, you know, I'd beforehand been conscious of some things, but fairly apolitical, and so just um, to really experience this seismic shift in my consciousness, you know, felt like I was crying all the time, but felt like there was few people who I could really talk to, and actually I didn't even really have, like, language to be able to put into words oftentimes what I was feeling, you know, but I was really coming undone. It didn't feel like there was many people that I could really speak with in a, like, think out loud with, you know, so I sought out those places that were in more politicized places. Mm -hmm. But none of this really sparked reflection on myself as a white person. I can definitely relate to Zara and that I was an undergrad around the same time, and I remember feeling devastated and outraged, some of my first voting years seeming so disgusting, so despicable, so hopeless when it came to foreign policy and the treatment of Muslims in the U.S. In my last year of college, my social psychology teacher had us watch Les Mounois' The Color of Fear, and I began to catch a slight glimpse of how, ooh, I might actually be just a little bit racist myself. And I cried when I watched it. I felt shame. And then I immediately demonized the old hippie white dude in the video who seemed pretty clueless. What I learned about myself from the film was easily dismissed, forgotten, backburnered for several years. But I was lucky. Most majors don't include videos of people from different racial backgrounds discussing their feelings towards each other. In fact, despite what's circulating in the news media about race relations in this country, and despite what people might be learning in college, that 2014 study I mentioned before shows that the majority of millennials believe their generation is post-racial. And many believe in the idea that we should be colorblind. You know, anti-racist discourse it uses a lot of sight metaphors, you know, like making the invisible visible or mm. naming whiteness or, you know, it's like this thing that's structurally invisible. Right, to like white people or that were color. structurally, yeah, blind to it mm -hmm. or conditioned to feel numbness to it. And so it's like, what is that process of opening up feeling, bringing things into sight, naming it? Zara points to how dangerous it is to try to convince ourselves racism is a thing of the past or a thing which only involves other people. It's dangerous to pretend we aren't subject to our cultural programming or the organizing nature of our minds. And it's dangerous to not see ourselves in the context of our own white identities. I am just a little pile of flesh. You are just a little pile of flesh. And who will come to clean up this mess? Well, I guess. Stage three. Stage three is all about opening up awareness to include ourselves. For some, this is happening as a result of the widespread media attention on race-motivated killings in the U.S. and activist groups like Black Lives Matter. For some, graduate school was the place where we dropped in a little deeper. Zara describes her experience of this beautifully. 
I'm so much shy to admit, <laughs> but it wasn't until I went to graduate school where I went to a program in postcolonial cultural anthropology to really focus on social justice advocacy research and focusing on media representations of the Middle East that I really learned about whiteness and what whiteness has to do with systems of racism. And so while there was this deep concern and uh, outrage and um, constant sorrow that I was living with that didn't really spark reflection on myself as white and how these racialized representations always reinforce whiteness as good, more fully human, more beautiful, more true, normal, safe, and vulnerable, secure, more fully human, more beautiful, more true, more fully human, more safe, um, and so that was a really like shattering revelations to learn about histories of the social construction of whiteness and feel how clearly they were describing the construction of me. Stage three is like, holy shit. This is happening everywhere, all the time. And if I'm not directly, albeit unintentionally, causing pain, I'm part of a system, a legacy, a thing that supports me by pushing others down. My colonialist ancestors? They probably owned slaves and evicted native people from their land. And that's had lasting impacts on my life and the descendants of those they've oppressed. One of the women I spoke to at the bar talks about how this hit her when she was 19 and studying abroad. I like don't want. I know when it first really hit me, and it is because I was doing the most one of one of the more white privileged things. I was in West Africa, in Ghana, and we went to the slave castles. And when I went to the slave castles, I was just like overwhelmed with this feeling of like, I don't deserve to be at this historical spot learning. Like this is, I'm so fortunate to have this experience and it's because I'm white and privileged that I was able to afford to go, not like the only, but this is, this was like 19 year old me going through. <laughs> um, and just realizing that it was all funded by tourism, like right outside they were selling souvenirs. Well, because in the, the castles, the first Christian church in all of Africa was above where the women stayed in the basement. And I grew up Christian also, so I was like, my ancestors, like all that, all that. Um, how, how did you feel? Like, do you, do you know, like, what what came up for you and what, like what the emotions were? I was so overwhelmed with like kind of guilt. I didn't and I'm clearly really chatty. I didn't talk for like the next 24 hours. I just wrote in my journal. I haven't reread it because it was like kind of an overwhelming. For another woman who I interviewed who worked as a residential counselor with families from underserved communities, her understanding of how people of color responded to her and her role occurred over a long period of time. 
coming in trying to work with these families. I mean, I've been called the white devil. I've been literally like yelled at in my face, like, what the fuck do you think you can do for my family? And it's so uncomfortable and so difficult to sit in that way. And my first reaction was, hello, I'm trying to help you. (laughs) How can you say that to me? I'm trying to help. And I had no idea at the time what that really meant in terms of the system, the mental health system is all represented predominantly by white female, mostly, but not all people, you know, and so much mistrust and can be, and it can be created. So, um, yeah, I, again, it felt like a personal attack. At first, yes, exactly. Like, over time, you were able to reframe that for not for many years. Yeah, not for many years. I really carried that and, and felt a little bitter and angry and like, you know, wanting to think think of her as entitled you know here you're at this place wanting help and I'm here but I'm not good enough you know it's so easy for us to just fall back into the human parts you know feeling angry and defensive and um, I think that's to be expected and natural to go to that space for a little while too and then educate yourself you know and that's to me like this whole process is just is through educating myself and continuing to read things and and all the while noticing where I'm coming from in my perspective. For people of color, there can be this pain, this frustration and rage that comes from watching your white peers have their minds blown at 25, 35, 50 years old. My friend Tom describes this in reference to an experience where he was interacting with a white person who was possibly, genuinely trying to learn from him. He said the situation brought up so many feelings of anger, confusion, and self-doubt. Not knowing what's right and wrong, not knowing who he, as a person of color, who is angry about the impact of racism, and also who he, as a person who wants to caretake others and not want anyone to feel bad, should have handled the situation. You know, it happens unconsciously. Like, you don't really realize that you're trying to, like, like say that was good that was bad until like you've kind of like played it over like 10 times in your mind already and suffered for it and then that you're all of a sudden you're like what the fuck am I trying to do and and then when like I realize like oh I don't need to decide what this situation was it just kind of was good and bad then that's when I like remember how shitty it is just to have to deal with it all the time there's oftentimes not awareness of how coming to those realizations and the emotions, the really strong emotions that can accompany them. This is Zara. Can be, you know, off-putting at best, re-traumatizing at worst to people of color. Like the degree of shock that a white person may feel about racism is related to the degree of insulation from racism that we are wrapped so thickly with via white privilege. And I'll name here that this process of getting really down and dirty with this knowledge, it feels pretty new to me, like just a few years old. And every year it goes a little deeper. And sometimes I retreat a little and sometimes I dive back in. But it's also important to note there that it's because, as a white person, I can retreat. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. 
You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Oh, the Matrix. In this incredible scene, Neo is faced with a really important choice. Does he take the blue pill or the red pill? As a white person, I get to choose whether or not I'm going to awaken to the constructs that support me and risk being devastated by what I see, or decide to stay home and sleep in my comfy bed and not think about any of it. As one person at the bar who studied abroad in Cameroon put it, The privilege like, kicks in when you're able to then extract yourself from that situation. Like You're able to dive in and understand, and then you can remove yourself. And if you want, you can go back into your own bubble. And then I think like the work is maintaining that perspective. My friend Tom really wondered about this when he was taking a cross-cultural counseling course and was surrounded by mostly white classmates. One of the first things I said in class was like, why do the white people in here care? And I was like, I felt like I was calling people out, but it's like, but it was a sincere question too. Like, to try to awaken to this is going to bring you a lot of pain and discomfort. And what are you actually benefiting from? Like, you might say, like, I have this philosophical belief that greater awareness is a positive. And I mean, I agree. I believe that. But it still seems like I could see very good reason, very good motivation for people to never awaken to their privilege. Naturally, stepping into this space and dismantling the things I've known to be true is painful. It's scary. It's like Armageddon kind of stuff. Internal paradigms are shifting. And with this comes grief and loss, loss of innocence, loss of identity. With grief and loss come a whole myriad of other reactions like guilt and shame, anger, defensiveness, denial. And yet when we hang in there, we can get to other things like acceptance. These kinds of responses are so predictable in anti-racism work, there's loads of literature focusing on this alone. But here's what gets so sticky. These reactions, they're part of a process that's basically unavoidable in the road towards change. But in the meantime... When white people have their emotional reactions, people of color can be harmed. That's that fundamental difficulty in ongoing practice as a facilitator is like wanting to encourage that type of learning and unlearning for white people and to not have that be at the cost of people of color in the room. Um, and for white people to be able to have a space to go through their process to be able to think out loud, to be able to have like all this toxic conditioning and ignorance come out, you know, and be aware of impacts and effects. Allegra describes how it is for her to witness what she calls a white person having a white guilt meltdown. It just takes up a lot of space. <laughs> it just takes up a lot of space and it usually goes the same way and it, like you said it, it stems from this sense of guilt there's like a genuine sense of wanting to be helpful but without um, being mindful of the dynamic in the room in terms of like you know this is my tragedy now and um, and and then people of color are told to either take care of the person I learned to start to get up and leave because for a long time there was a lot of explaining, educating, and teaching, and then I'm working harder than anybody else in the room. 
um, when we're having discussions on diversity and what I have started to have to do is um, to, to learn how to take care of myself and to realize that I belong in a different conversation. And there's time for cross-cultural discourse, but there's that when there's that identity crisis for the white person, I am not the best support for that white person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like I need to, sometimes I need to get up and go, or sometimes I need to say that. I know it might be hard if you're white to understand in this moment. Like, you're having a very real reaction. You're feeling genuine sadness over the pain your black friends, for instance, have endured and they're pissed about it. But this isn't about whether or not you're a good white person or a bad white person or a good person at all. It's about a history of taking, a history of white people being at the center of everything and being supported as a whole. It's not necessarily about us white people as individuals, but more about us as part of a collective violence. I asked everyone I spoke to what they think white people could do to engage and be better allies. Here's some of the things folks at the bar said. believe so much in connecting with your ancestors and your cultural background no matter how far away or like distant it is if I think that if you really were to explore your cultural history or your roots you'll find ways to connect with an empathic heart to current day issues of race what I would love is um these things can be expressed and you don't have to react to it like if you react to it and you start defending it it's because it's because it threatens you in some way yeah i don't know i don't i wish that there was something i wish that there was like a thing that was presented to me like oh well if you change these two or three things then it would you know have a ripple effect and change the whole culture or world, I, at this point, don't feel like I'm doing anything or that I could do anything outside of the way that I already live. Yeah. That's hard when it's not super clear what, what could be helpful. Right. Do you? Um, I feel like this is part of it. Just trying to So he tricked me into talking because I'm guessing... It's so damn hard to sit there and say, it's shitty, and I don't have an answer. And I kind of fell into that trap and started trying to answer the question myself. Some things have no real resolution. So what you do instead is you just sit in a shit ton of confusion and pain and hatred and, and anger and sadness, and you just have to accept that that's what's there for you. And then let those things work through, and then try to work on with a higher purpose. You know, but like... I mean, most people don't really let themselves sit with that shit. But, like, that's something I've, like, tried to call directly into rooms before of, like, don't fucking respond to me right now. Don't, like, say something positive. Like, just sit with the shit because that's what it is. Let's just do that for a moment. I 
asked Allegra what's helpful to her as a person of color and what she's seen through her experience as a facilitator. Look around the room and see how your words impact people. And if you're really paying attention, you'll know, you'll get cues that something, some harm has been done. Just pay attention. So that's about like sticking your neck out, getting, um, you know, perhaps getting uncomfortable uh, for the sake of somebody else, using your power to benefit someone else instead of yourself and say, hey, you know, this might disrupt the, the you know, discussion that we're having or the board meeting that we're having or the mm. classroom discussion that we're having. But I think what you just said was really offensive and racist to call mm. it out. Yeah, when the person of color has to do it, it's in this whole other context, right? First of all, it's like, all right, I know what's going to happen now. <laughs> I'm going to bring this up and it's all going to explode. It's like you raise your hand and then you're afraid that you're going to be perceived as paranoid, oversensitive, or the angry black woman. So it's really nice when a white person can be like, hey, I saw you just do this and I'm calling you out. You know, as a white person, from a white person, I'm calling you out and this is wrong. Okay. So then how do you avoid the phenomenon of white-splaining? How do you know when to speak up on behalf of someone or when it would be more empowering for them to speak up for themselves. Sometimes I need, and what's beneficial for me, is to stand up to the white person mm-hmm. in the room or the person in power in the room for me. Yeah. And, and that could be being robbed. <laughs> I could be robbed of that opportunity by a white planner. <laughs> if everybody's paying attention, if everybody cares about how their words land on other people, and if everybody's looking into the eyes of the other people as they're watching their breath, you know, if if we could just care about anything outside of ourselves 10% more, I think that we would have a better conversation and you would have the intuition to know, wait a minute, I think Allegra wants to say something right now. You know, I mm-hmm. think Allegra really has this having a reaction and she's not silenced right now. If you see people of color getting quiet in a room and getting hot, if you see them shutting down, then then maybe that's the time to step up. Zara emphasizes the need for white people to seek out care and support from other white people in order to not put the burden of our emotions on people of color. To have that sensitivity in mixed race spaces, which does not mean that, you know, white people need to be totally repressed and Mm -hmm. false and silent, but it does mean acknowledging in some way that if strong emotions come up that you don't need to be taken care of. Like it's really important to seek out care for yourself to handle emotions that are, I mean, from my point of view, as intense or more intense than what most people seek out therapy for. And we're talking about healing and social healing, like heartbreak around realities of racism and our complicity within it is a great reason to go to therapy. I wish more people would. In summary, if you're white and you're wondering what you can do, listen to people of color. Read books and articles written by people of color. Get to know yourself and your own complex identity. Pay attention to people in the room in mixed race settings and speak up when it seems necessary. Talk about race and white privilege with other white people. Find white people who have been doing this work for years and ask questions. Sit in the icky feelings. Let others sit in the icky feelings too. Don't try to fix it. 
Be willing to fuck up and learn while being mindful of who you're fucking up with. And hey, you could always talk about it in therapy. I'm not going to wrap this up with a bow because this is an ongoing conversation. Like Tom says, sometimes we just need to sit in the discomfort, the pain, the anger, without trying to find a positive spin. The only way out is through, but by through, I don't mean taking a day-long diversity workshop. This is a lifelong process, one that will continue for generations to come. You can find links to all kinds of incredible resources to help build awareness, as well as how to find Zara and Allegra on the internet at atherapistwalksintoabar.com. Thank you so much to Zara and Allegra, as well as Tom and the other folks at the bar. Your perspectives have helped me deepen my own understanding. Thank you to Ryan Krikow, Karen Smiley, Tiffany McLean, and Marielle Berg for feedback and direction along the way. The theme song was by Topher M. Lewis, and you also heard Piles of Flesh by Crown of Fog. Links on the website. And if you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a review, like, you know, with five stars on iTunes. And subscribe, follow, share with everyone you know. Just in time for V-Day, next month's episode is all about relationship drama. You won't want to miss it.